You can be seated. If you've got your Bibles with you, you can open to Mark chapter 7. If you need a Bible, there are some over here to my right and your left. Or if you've got your Bible on your phone, you can click over to there. We continue our study in Mark's Gospel tonight. We'll be in Mark 7, verses 1 through 23. Just a reminder, we're here next week at 4 o'clock. And then the next week, we're meeting Sunday morning at 10 a.m., praise the Lord, um, and uh, at Olivet. And then we started to push uh, some advertisements for that move out onto social media. Uh, so if you see it, be sure to like it and comment on it and share it. Um, I also sent an email about if you'll just go and log into Google um, and uh, leave a review of the church through Google. It will help when people Google churches in Wilmington to push us up into view um, for people who may be looking for a church. And so um, we started an advertisement today, and I've, one email has come through already from the contact us section of our um, website asking for more information about the church and what we're doing, and they saw the ad. So I'll be praying for that. Also be praying for the people that you've been inviting and reaching out to. And next week uh, when we get together, we will have some invitations for you printed up. If you want to take those and hand them out um, to people that you've been building relationships with, we will have those for you. There is a story of two brothers who were raised near Cairo, Georgia, which is a very rural, easy for me to say, part of Georgia. One brother, school came very easy to. The other brother, not so much. And so the brother who enjoyed school and who thrived in school ended up leaving Cairo, Georgia. He went to Georgia Tech and enrolled and became a world-class engineer, and he lived in Chicago. And his brother remained on the farm in Cairo for the rest of his life. Well, at a certain point, the a brother who was an engineer in Chicago was invited down to the Peachtree Plaza Hotel in Atlanta to speak at a convention. So he, being a loving brother, invited his country brother and his family to come to the city to join him to see the sights and the sounds of the city. And so after the brother and his wife and their son made the harrowing journey through the interstate system of Georgia, and if you've ever driven to Atlanta, you know what that is like. Uh, they get to the Peachtree Plaza Hotel. The husband set, tells his wife, says, you stay in the car. Son and I are going to go in, we'll check us in, and we'll come back out and get you. And so they walk into the Peachtree Plaza Hotel, and right in front of them is a bank of elevators. Now, the country brother has never left the city bigger than Cairo. He's never left Cairo in his whole life, so he doesn't know what an elevator is. And so he's standing there, and they're watching, and this plain, middle-aged lady steps into the elevator and presses the button, and the doors close. And then about five seconds later, the doors open and out comes a young, attractive woman. There's the true picture of loveliness. And the dad punches his son in the arm and says, hey, go get your mom from the truck. I want to run her through one of these right quick. <laughs> and if we're, if we're honest, that's a lot of times how we view our attempts to maintain or generate our own righteousness is we think, well, if I can just go do these few things really well for just a few seconds, it's going to somehow change me. And that's the same way the Pharisees and the scribes of Jesus' day thought about cleanness and holiness and how to obtain a right standing before God. And they thought it, could come through, it would come through people adhering to their teachings, being ran through a complicated series of do's and don'ts, those who could follow it to, through to its end would come out on the other side as acceptable to God. 
And Jesus, through his interaction that we're going to look at today in Mark 7, 1 through 23, begins to point the Jewish teachers, along with his disciples, to the truth that no external cleanness will suffice. There must be an internal cleanness in our lives that can only be realized through the giving of a new heart. James Edwards, in his commentary, says this, Mark profiles Jesus as the one who, in contrast to the oral tradition, is the true revealer of God. For Jesus can produce the inner transformation that the law requires but cannot affect. Let's pray. Jesus, we are grateful. We're grateful that in your life and in your death, you obtained righteousness for us, and then you gave it freely and joyfully to those of us who would trust and believe in you. And so, Father, will we be aware of the fact that our righteousness before you, our ability to come to you in prayer, is not a cause for pride in our life. It's cause for deep humility. Because it's nothing that we've done. It's all been acts of your grace and your mercy in our life. And so will we look again to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith? Not to ourselves, not to our works, but will we look to Jesus and his finished work to find our hearts rest and our souls delight in Jesus and Jesus alone. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. This is what Mark writes in Mark 7, 1 through 23. Eventually, I'm going to pick a shorter section of Scripture to read, so I'm not tempted to pray again at the end, but I'm not going to do it again this week. It's what Mark writes, starting in 7, 1. Now, when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes ask him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? As it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching us doctrines, the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand, there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. 
all these evil things come from within and they defile a person. So we're going to look at the first 13 verses together and then we'll look at the last uh, 9 or 10 verses together. Jesus has healed the sick and he's made his way back home into the Galilee area and he is enjoying a meal with his disciples when the Pharisees and some scribes from Jerusalem arrive where they're having dinner. These guys are not very fun to invite to a party. Do you ever see the SNL skit with Debbie Downer where they would like play, they would be like at the thing and everybody would be having a good time and then she would start to talk and she would always like just make these horrible points that while true just really killed the environment like wah, wah, wah. that's how it kind of is when the pharisees and the scribes show up especially when jesus and his disciples are just trying to enjoy getting a meal together and the teachers of the law notice that jesus disciples do not wash their hands before eating and so they catch Jesus attention and they ask him why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of elders but eat with defiled hands now in the previous verses in Mark 7 3 through 4 and you see it a few other times in this section of Mark 7 1 through 23 Mark provides a parenthetical explanation of what's going on and this is because he wants those who are his readers largely the Greco-Roman people who are investigating the claims of Christianity, he wants to explain to them very clearly why the issue of hand washing would be a problem for the Pharisees and scribes. And so Mark says the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. The Pharisees and scribes were like uh, germaphobes on steroids. But their concern wasn't necessarily germs as in you don't want to get sick. Their, Their concern was if they touched anything or anything came into contact with them that would make them ritually unclean. They wanted to make sure before they ate a meal or did anything else that in God's eyes they were clean. And so they would go through elaborate washing processes. They would wash their hands. They would wash cups. They would wash anything that they had touched or that others may have touched that would make it defiled or unclean clean but what led them to do this what was this tradition of the elders where did it come from why did it have such sway over the pharisees and scribes and why does it seem that jesus doesn't really care for their tradition maybe you've asked those questions let's see if we can unpack them tonight the oral tradition or you could call it the tradition of the elders or if you're an academic you would call it the mishnah is this oral tradition that was existed around the law of Moses. And it came to prominence among the Pharisees because they believed that when God gave Moses the law, the written law that, we, that they called the Torah, which is the first five books of the Bible, the Pharisees believed when God gave Moses that law that was written down, he also gave Moses an oral tradition or an oral law to be followed. And so... There was the written law that we have, and then there was this oral law. And James Edwards explains how they work together when he says this. The Mishnah, or the oral law, was believed to preserve an unbroken chain of authorized tradition extending from Moses to the great synagogue of Jesus' day. The Mishnah called the oral interpretation a fence around the Torah, fence being understood as a preservation of the integrity of the written law by elaborating every conceivable implication of it. Can we just start? 
you imagine how long that would have taken? If you're trying to work out every conceivable implication of the law of God given to Moses that's written down, that is a serious commitment. Most of us check out of our yearly Bible reading in Leviticus, and they were like, man, this just gets me going. Like, they had taken the time to figure out every possible implication and scenario for how the law could be used. The Torah alone, according to advocates of the oral tradition, was believed to be too ambiguous to establish and govern the Jewish community. And so this brings us to the point, we've got to answer the, the question, why was the law given? If, these, if the Pharisees believed the oral tradition was to help govern a Jewish community because they thought God was too ambiguous in the Torah, then what was the purpose of the law in the first place? We're not going to go into a long discussion about this, but here are just maybe two or three things that we know about why the law was given. One, the law was given to Moses to help us see and understand the character and nature of the God who created us and the God who would eventually in Christ redeem us. And so the law is given as an expression of God's character. And the second thing we know about the law is that the law was given to us not so that we could follow it to the point that we would become righteous, but the law was meant to expose our sinfulness and our unrighteousness and cause us to look to God to provide salvation for us by some other way. And so that's why we had the law, but the Pharisees and others thought that wasn't good enough, and so they began to work to figure out every conceivable implication of it, which led to these elaborate rules about the washing of your hands and how far you could walk on the Sabbath and how many animals you could count or how many ounces or whatever their weights were, how, how much could you lift without violence. It was an elaborate sham. And here's what's most concerning about it the pharisees and the scribes who could read and understand who were some of the most educated men of the day should have been reading the law of god and exhorting men and women to trust in god for salvation the law at the very least was meant to create a pathway where we would look to god for salvation And the Pharisees slammed the door shut on that. They put up the oral tradition or the gate around the law. And they keep those who are looking for grace, who are looking for the God that's revealed in the Old Testament, who has promised to save them. It keeps everyone from being able to get to God. This leads Jesus to announce Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you, hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. The Pharisees and the scribes have become well-versed, pun intended, of speaking highly of God with their lips while hiding their hearts from him. While they were quick to speak about the light that Scripture promised to pour into our lives, they did all they could to keep their own hearts shriveling in the dark. Not only that, but this also put them in the position of keeping others from coming to God. This is why Jesus would say in Matthew seven thirteen and verses 27 through 28 the following, But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! 
for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Verse 27, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. The very thing that they would tout, their ritual cleanness, Jesus in Matthew says, you're more unclean than those who aren't washing their hands before a meal. The very thing that you say you despise is the only thing that's inside of you, hypocrisy and uncleanness. But Jesus isn't simply leveling a baseless accusation against the Pharisees and scribes. He doesn't just say you're a bunch of hypocrites and walk out. Jesus gives a concrete example of one of the most egregious areas of hypocrisy in their teaching. Let me just pause and step outside this for just a moment. In our relationships, in our desire to encourage one another to grow in Christ-likeness, we need to pause for a moment and learn from Jesus' example. If you're going to say that someone is in sin, you need to have where in the scriptures it's called a sin, and then you need to have an example to take before that person. There has been more damage done in the church because we make baseless accusations about personality differences that we claim are sins than actually confronting one another in our sins and pointing each other back to Christ. Christ is our example in how to do this. We all are going to struggle with sin. It's going to be uncomfortable. It's never going to be a right time to call someone in their sin. But make sure if you're going to call someone before God to own their sin that you see, make sure you can point them to where the Bible clearly teaches it's a sin and that you have evidence of that sin in their life. That will help keep a lot of things that are personality quirks and differences that need to be covered in love from rising to the point of accusing each other of being hypocrites and sinners. Fair enough? Back in. Here we go. Exodus 20, 12 says, Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Clear enough to understand, right? Like the, any ambiguity here, which the Pharisees said there was in the law, you couldn't trust it to govern. Any ambiguity here? No, that's pretty, I mean, I went to public school. I can get this one, right? Leviticus 27, 28. But no devoted thing that a man devotes to the Lord of anything that he has, whether man or beast, or of his inherited field, shall be sold or redeemed. Every devoted thing is most holy to the Lord. These were two clear commands of Scripture. And Jesus says, here's where your hypocrisy lies Pharisees. You elevate the one, the vow of devotion of things to God over against the call to honor your parents. You pit the law of God against itself, claiming that there's a more moral superior way to go. What the Pharisees and scribes had done was used the idea of devoted things over against honoring your parents as an end around to deny the command of the law to honor one's parents. 
in a shame and honor culture like first century Palestine was, it was almost impossible to go back on an oath made in public. And the Pharisees knew this. So when they start to elevate this idea of Corban up, they know that if they can get you to make a loud verbal appeal or a, I just lost the word in my, an oath. That's the word I was looking for. Good gracious. If they could get you to make an oath in public, then they knew that the shame and the honor culture was at work against you. That to go back on that oath was to heap shame not only on you, but on your family. And so what it became was this elaborate system where there was no accountability between oaths and caring for your parents. Ben Witherington explains better the uh, force of the oath in the life of first century people when he says this, Oaths were taken so seriously in Jesus' social setting that it was difficult, if not impossible, to repent of something said using an oath. Even if it was said in haste or in a moment of anger, the duty to fulfill a vow had been allowed to take precedence over the duty to parents. What this allowed people to do what this allowed especially sons to do with property that was theirs is that they could devote it to God and rob their parents of being able to profit or benefit from it later on in life and Jesus says you can't do this is not how this was intended to work your first and primary duty is to honor your parents you don't declare anything in a vow to God that you cannot get out of that vow and then care for your family if need be you cannot pit these two things against one another and the truth of the matter is that declaring something Corbin was rarely done as a means of showing religious piety T.W. Manson exposes the depths of the issue that Jesus is after when he says this a man goes through the formality of vowing something to God not that he may give it to God but in order to prevent some other person from having it. They would go through elaborate ceremonies where their voices and their lips confessed the greatness of God and their desire to serve him. Their hearts were as far from God as you could be because it was not about devoting this thing to God so much as it was about keeping anyone else from profiting and benefiting from it as long as they were alive. Elevating tradition over against the law allowed for the Pharisees and the scribes to baptize and commend greed and a host of other sins as not that big of a deal. And Jesus says, you're a bunch of hypocrites. And if we're honest, we too are prone to hypocrisy just like the Pharisees and the scribes. I'm not going to ask you to devote like your next three paychecks to the church because we're short on our budget. Like I kind of I was like, maybe, maybe we use this as a way to spur on some fundraising here. Declare it, Corbin. Come on. We don't do this, but often what we do when we drift towards hypocrisy, there are two ways that it looks most often in our life, and you probably fit in between here somewhere. But one of the most often used tactics when we are drifting into hypocrisy is this: we use our own more lenient definition of the commands of Jesus to judge ourselves as righteous while judging everyone else by the strictest interpretation of the commands of Jesus. 
And when we drift into hypocrisy, we say, what's the easiest, simplest way to understand this and to give myself a sense of being right with Jesus? That's how I'm going to judge myself. What's the strictest, most harshest way this can be applied to someone's life? I'm going to apply that to everyone else so that I feel like I'm making it. So that's one way we do it. Or we use obedience in one area, often to the highest possible standard of obedience, as a means of excusing willful sin in another. And so we say things like, well, I didn't murder anyone today. And we overlook lies, and we overlook gossip, and we overlook slander, and we overlook anger. Well, I didn't cheat on my spouse today. And we overlook dishonesty, and we overlook being not we overlook the lack of generosity that we do that we use our own ability to be really obedient in one area to downplay our disobedience in other areas and it creates a rift in us it creates a hypocritical stance in us and we're left going I know that this isn't true but I'm so far committed to the game now I don't know how to get out of it And so what we continue to do is we continue to entrench ourselves in these patterns and we begin to lobby for our own righteousness while ignoring the words of Jesus' half-brother James in his New Testament letter where he says in James 2.10, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. And we entrench ourselves so firmly in this game of hypocrisy that we lose the ability to come to Christ honestly. And so Jesus does call the Pharisees and the scribes hypocrites. And on the front end, that sounds harsh. But if we really understand it, if we really understand Jesus' charge of hypocrisy now on this side of the cross, we see that it's an invitation to come to him. It's an invitation to say nothing that you're trying is working. It's not giving you freedom. It's not giving you peace. It's not giving you joy. It's just further entrenching you in death and lies and sin. The story is told of a zoo that was noted for their great collection of different animals. One day, the gorilla died. And to keep up the appearance of a full range of animals, the zookeeper hired a man to wear a gorilla suit and fill in for the dead animal. It was his first day on the job, and the man didn't know how to act like a gorilla very well. As he tried to move convincingly, he got too close to the wall of the enclosure and tripped and fell into the lion exhibit. He began to scream, convinced his life was over until the lion spoke to him. Be quiet, or you're going to get us both fired. When we become like the man in the gorilla suit, when we're playing the part of righteous and holy, when we know that we're not really, and we begin to give voice, we begin to cry out for God to hear and to forgive and to rescue and redeem us, often what happens is it's not the outside world that says, hey, watch it. Often the push for silence comes from fellow believers who are trapped in the same lies and cycles of hypocrisy that you're trapped in. And they nudge you and they say, hey, shut up or we're both going to be found out. And what we do, what we do in the church is then instead of 
pushing each other towards Christ and towards righteousness and pushing each other forward in our walk, we regress back to the sinful mean of let's all just be really mediocre. And we elbow each other all the time and we say, stop, stop growing. I don't want you to grow because I don't want to have to grow. You don't want to get us both fired, right? And that's what we do in the church. Instead of the church being a community of saints pushing each other forward, we begin to be saints that are pulling each other back. And Christ says, that's not what life in the kingdom is for. That's not what life in the kingdom should be like. So what is life in the kingdom to be like? Jesus, in verse 14, calls the bystanders who have been watching and listening to this interaction with the Pharisees and scribes to draw near. Once the murmur of movement dies down, Jesus says, Hear me, all of you, and understand there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And then he abruptly turns and enters the house. He's like, Everybody, listen. Nothing outside of you will defile you. It's what's inside. All right, bye. I mean, it's reminiscent of like the TMZ reporter who's waiting outside of the Hollywood restaurant and they like dog some star when they walk out of the restaurant to get in their waiting car and they're like, answer, answer, answer. And they turn just before they get in and they give some quick sound bite and then they just kind of duck into that car, heavily tinted windows and off they go. And that's kind of the reaction of Jesus is they, hey, everybody, listen. And then he's just gone. And you've got to imagine, on the one hand, there are those that are still standing outside that house going, huh? Like, what? What? What is that? But that's not what the Pharisees and the scribes have been. That, that's not what we're used to hearing. But Mark doesn't leave us on the outside. He brings us once again on the inside of the house where the disciples ask for clarification regarding the parable that Jesus This is reminiscent of the earlier scene where once in the safety of the home, Jesus explained the parable of the sower to his disciples. Jesus goes on to explain that it's not the exterior contaminants that touch us or that we ingest like food that make us unclean. Rather, it is what is already inside of us, our sin-diseased hearts that make us unclean. And in the process, Mark offers a very important Clarification. All foods were declared clean. So Mark gives us the reason for the washing in verses 3 through 4. Then he gives us the brief explanation of Corbin. And then he says all foods were declared clean. Before we go any further, look, Mark wrote that so that the Greco-Romans and Gentiles like us would know it would never be about an adherence to the law or to any type of dietary law that would be what saved us. Mark provides those parenthetical editorial comments so that we would rest in knowing that it's never going to be about the ability to keep the law or adhere to a certain dietary plan that's going to save us. So what will save us? That's the question we're left to wrestle with, and Jesus doesn't provide much in the way of explanation here, but this is what he says. He provides a list of vices to show what true uncleanness and defilement looks like. The first six vices are all evil acts that one performs, while the second six vices are all evil attitudes that one can have. So Jesus says it's not only your actions, 
but it's also the attitude. It's not only what you can see your body doing in responding to what's outside of you that should cause you to be aware of your uncleanness, but it's also the stuff that never makes it out into public that will condemn you as unclean. Ben Witherington notes, both attitudes and actions counted and both manifested what one's orientation was. Jesus, in his own way, heightens the demand for purity beyond what the Pharisees expected. But his, his approach involves strict moral purity. Here it is. Personal sin, not physical impurity, is what now defiles, rendering one unfit for fellowship with God or other humans. And that's where Mark 7, 23 leaves off. Now, if Mark 7, 23 were the end of all of Scripture and we had nothing else to go off of, the Bible would end at a very depressing place. Because there would be no hope for any of us. Regardless of our ability to keep the law or adhere to a dietary plan, if, if the Bible ends at Mark 7, 23, we're all dead. Luckily, it doesn't. And so we can read Mark 7, 23, and then we can say thanks be to God that the purity God demands from us, God supplies for us in Christ. The question for us is, have we believed and trusted in Christ? And do we continue to believe and trust in Christ when confronted with the lingering power of sin in our life? And here's the deal. If we're honest, we often struggle with owning just how deep the roots of sin are in us. We blame what's going on outside of us for what comes from inside of us. And Jesus says, it doesn't matter what's going on outside of you. The sin that's inside of you has been there the whole time. But exterior actions and exterior things will draw the sin out of you. So we try to alleviate the truth of our ongoing sin struggles by either advocating for our own righteousness, by trying to keep our own oral or social tradition, or we compare ourselves to others who don't meet our own contrived standard of righteousness. All the while, we ignore the standard of holiness and righteousness that God has called us to. In the end, we find that hypocrisy doesn't lead to freedom. It leads to an ever-increasing burden of guilt and shame that threatens to crush us under its weight. The great lie of hypocrisy, the great lie of Satan, is that if you will lie to yourself, you'll find freedom. If you will not believe the depths of sin in you, that's how you'll get over the power of sin in you. And all that does is it adds an ever-increasing weight to our lives, to our hearts, to our spirits, and it slowly begins to crush us. And here's the other truth. Everyone you know who has questions about the faith who's not yet a believer, one of the biggest questions they have that they may not even know how to articulate is this. Can my shame be removed? Can I be free of shame? And when we live bound by hypocrisy, we declare with our words and with our lives, no, you cannot find freedom from shame in Christ. Because all we do is heap it on ourselves and others. So Christ says, for freedom, I've set you free. And we say, in Christ, there's nothing but bondage and self-loathing and self-hatred. 
because we choose to live as hypocrites rather than as honest confessors before God and one another. And so in Christ, can you feel, can you know that your shame has been removed? Yes. Yes, if you are in Christ, shame no longer defines you. But you can put yourself back in the shackles of shame when you choose to live as a hypocrite who won't own the full depths of your sinfulness. So if hypocrisy doesn't bring freedom that it seems to promise, what does? It's honesty before God about who we are, the deep-rootedness of our sin and our inability to save ourselves. This honesty leads us to the freedom that Christ has offered. This is the truth of the matter. It takes faith to approach Christ in honesty. It takes faith to approach Christ in honesty and trust that when we come to him, his righteous, clean hands won't push us away. No, when we come to Christ, it is his righteous, clean, and nail-scarred hands that reach out to us and take us by our dirty, sin-stained hands, and he embraces us but it takes faith to really believe that. So Jesus says, you hypocrites, you honor me with your lips, but your heart is far from me. And I just wonder how many of us that's true for tonight. We've trusted in Christ. We know that we're secure in him, but over the past six months, six years, however long it's been, You've just lived under a crushing weight and burden that hypocrisy brings because you continue to acknowledge Jesus with your lips and you continue to keep your heart hidden away from him. This is what the hymn, The Nail-Scarred Hand, says. Is your soul burdened down with its load of sin? Place your hand in the nail-scarred hand. Throw your heart open wide. Let the Savior in. Place your hand in the nail-scarred hand. Would you come to Jesus today? Let's pray.